0: I'm Jennifer Isabella, and I'm Sharon Lieber, your co-host for Forrester's podcast, What It Means, where we explore the major changes in the market influencing executive priorities. Today, we're joined by Vice President and Global Head of Events, Lisa Riley, and Principal Analyst, Jesse Johnson, to discuss the pivot to virtual events, the challenges companies face while pivoting, and what it takes to make virtual events successful. Welcome both. Thanks, Jen. Great to be here. Thank you. So I think this is pretty common knowledge, but in-person events, you know, they usually take up a pretty big chunk of B2B program budget, enter 2020 and all the things that that has entailed and COVID and what have you. So what's happening today with events? And maybe Jesse, you could share with us what you're hearing from clients in terms of the lost opportunity given the current climate.
1: Absolutely. Um, And really, the top two questions that we get as analysts can be summarized as, first of all, how do I deliver a great event experience in a virtual environment? And secondly, what will be the impact on pipeline that's typically sourced or influenced from an in-person event? And these apply to both hosted events and sponsorship of third-party events. But what Each of these questions really highlights is the opportunity within the event strategy itself and its integration and alignment with campaign architecture and supporting program families. If we think about the role of events in the mix, it's not just a demand creation play. We need to think about demand, brand, sales enablement, and even customer advocacy. So it's really the coordination of these core elements within the campaign strategy, as well as event goals and execution Across these program families. The other aspect of that is what we're hearing from clients and the value that they're assigning to the event content, the presentations, the materials that come from the vendors. So, what we make sure that we reinforce as we're talking with our clients is that this pivot to a virtual event experience does not in and of itself diminish the role of events in supporting the buyer's journey and the customer life cycle nor does it diminish the value of the content that's actually delivered so finding ways to activate and amplify that content both during the event and as we think about those post-event actions. So, integrating some of that very relevant content into the nurture series uh, after the event as an example. And even during the event, um, finding ways to connect attendees with one another, with speakers, with peers, getting that face time in as much as we can in a virtual environment using things like video and even conversational uh, interactions. When it comes to what do I with my goals and objectives, you know, that's always top of mind. It's it's one thing to get the content out there, to focus on that experience. How am I really measuring the success? So when it comes to those demand-oriented goals and objectives, organizations should really be focused on activating, validating, and accelerating demand by generating new engaged buying group members and advancing pipeline, not counting that MQL and that SQL or activity generated. Such as traffic to the booth, whether virtual or in person, as being that KPI. It's really what happens next. Who have we engaged? What more have we learned? And how can we better enable our buyers?
2: So, Jesse, you said that you know we can successfully achieve all the things, or, or at least the key uh, the key goals of an in-person event in virtual world. But I have to believe that that is predicated on the assumption that said virtual event is a success (laughs) and includes all of those things. And I would assume that also for a lot of folks that feels like a risky endeavor, we've never, maybe never done a virtual event. It's, It's even new for the attendees. So people don't even really know how to interact with it. So can you talk a little bit about how the clients you're talking to are weighing those factors and determining if it's even worth pivoting to a virtual event versus just canceling, um, and then some of the challenges that they face and
1: and and how to get past those. Absolutely, and really starting out with value as we're determining what events do we want to keep within the portfolio, maybe pivot to a virtual environment, and what are some of those considerations that we want to make along the way. So the value factors um, starting there really represent those event attributes that benefit organizations and compel your individuals, your buyers, your customers to attend. So as we're evaluating uh, the value of that event, what is the experience audience size? What is that key customer count? The influencer count and the value of those influencers? What's the engagement opportunity? Uh, Even retention value and market presence. So all of those factors come into play. You know, should we attend? Should we not attend? Should we pivot? Um, The other side of that is certainly cost. Uh, And one thing to, you know, really hammer home with some of our clients is that just because the event may be now virtual in nature, it doesn't negate the cost considerations. So that's everything from the logistics, the technology that you need to not only incorporate or integrate into your tech stack, but make sure that your teams are skilled in the utilization of that technology. So there are still a lot of cost considerations uh, to work through as well. And one of the, the tools that we use is our event selection tool. So this really helps B2B organizations understand which of those events they should engage in by determining whether that event type is appropriate for achieving their program objectives weighed against the cost and value factors.
2: So this is a perfect segue to you, Lisa, because you've just lived through all of those things and weighing <laughs> all of those options, uh, leading the Forrester events. So I, I feel like the floor should be yours at this point to just say, what does that feel like? How, what does it feel like to be in those shoes? And And what have you learned through the process coming out of it on a very successful side, I might add?
3: First and foremost, I think we're very fortunate to be in the position that we are in because we have successfully pivoted three of our biggest events to digital. But I will say some of the things that to echo what Jesse talked about, I think the biggest piece here is outside of what success looks like. I think one of the components that we are seeing and also what I'm hearing from our clients is that there is the initial sticker shock is that they're shocked they almost become in some places frozen by making the decision because all the components that Jesse talked about is very easy, particularly to an experienced marketer, a head of strategy. That is the typical playbook that they would actually move through. In this environment, it happened really quickly and some of those decisions were compounded. Some of that strategy is baked in a year in advance, six months in advance. What has happened? is a lot of those decisions compounded within, and some of our clients did it in eight weeks. We happened to do it in six weeks. But what it feels like is first and foremost, you literally have to consolidate all that decisions and really focus on first and foremost, what Jesse talked about is, what is the goals and objectives of your event? And what we're finding is for those that were successful and making the pivot and making the pivot quickly, and I'm talking, under 10 weeks, any in-person event typically has a full year ramp up to actually execute. The pivot to digital has happened literally in a third, if not a fourth of the time. And by making the pivot, they have to be clear on what the objective is of the event. And believe it or not, when you have some of these conversations, I think over time, because the in-person event has been so set in the legacy of the event. The actual goal of the event has gotten away, so making that pivot, deciding what you needed to focus on, ends up a lot of times impacting ultimately making decision, making decision fast, or what we had seen originally back in the first half of the year, is a lot of companies didn't know what to do, they punted to the second half, and now they still have to make a decision because the in-person event isn't happening, they still ultimately have to make the decision. And so for us, what made us, I think, as successful is that we knew what the objectives were with event, thought leadership, community, marketplace, one-on-one engagement. We knew that ultimately allowed us to accelerate, particularly through the tech stack of actually what we were going to select in terms of our platform, because then we can focus on executing and develop the product. So that's where we found some of our success, but it really had to do with being really clear on what your objectives were first and foremost, then quickly moving through the tech and then starting to execute.
0: So some of this sounds like very foundational though, like that, what you were saying, Lisa, feels like some of the events in the marketplace have been on autopilot because there is some sort of legacy there. So um, that's what I'm hearing. Is that a fair assessment based on conversations with clients and certainly what you're you know what you have experienced? You actually were like, these are our objectives, and we are very clear about these
3: objectives. And there's no, you know, shades of gray here. We know where to go. One hundred percent, because everyone will talk about there was a playbook. Most companies had their playbook of creating their in-person event, whether it was, large scale customer facing, third party, or even smaller, even it's like we're still dealing with sales kickoffs. Everyone had their playbook because many of these events have been running. There is no playbook. And so some of the things that were a direct replica of how you switch into a person are no longer there. So kind of force that reconsideration. And we're still finding, and I would love to hear from Jesse, I'm still finding in my conversations with our clients, they're still struggling of looking for a playbook, hence why they speak to experts like Jesse to help them, but also really getting also internal support because there's sometimes right now some lack of internal support, particularly on the executive level.
0: Yeah. I mean, maybe we could drill in a little bit there in terms of what are those challenges? Jesse speaking with clients and even, you know, Lisa, some of the sort of the, the hurdles and things that you experienced in that short amount of time pivoting some of our events
1: yeah definitely on and what we're hearing from clients you know coming back to the basics uh we've always talked about the three phases of the event before during and after so thinking about that need for campaign and program alignment one of the challenges that keeps coming up over and over is data unification so looking across your event tech as well as your marketing activation channels whether we're thinking about the website email advertising social media so this challenge Also, though, underscores what we're now seeing is the biggest opportunity in this post-event phase, and that's using those new buying signals that we're uncovering as a result of this rapid shift to digital to really better understand, engage, and enable our buying group with that next best action in mind. The other challenge, and and we did hit on this um, as well as, you know, thinking about the coordination and the functional interlock that's required, getting that executive support, getting the, uh, the alignment even between content and activation. So whatever your internal organization looks like, making sure that everybody is executing from that same playbook, even though that may itself be a living breathing document as we're we're going through these shifts. Um and to turn it over to to Lisa one thing that I found I've heard you say in the past Lisa that I thought was really so impactful was the, the scenarios planning, right? It's you have plans for what you know and what you don't know.
3: That's right. And I I could tell you when we were making the shift there was more that we didn't know than more than what we did know. But I think you know in fir- in terms of Some of the big aha moments were around first and foremost, I think it was around the pre-event. And for us, I think one of the largest things that we also hear about is the term virtual events. And we actually share this in some of our research right now. The terminology of virtual means a lot of different things to a lot of different people. And for us, what we meant by virtual in the Forrester way of our events, it was a fully robust, immersive environment. That is what we delivered. We basically were delivering everything that we possibly could of an in-person event into a virtual environment. And for us at the beginning, even more so than talking about we were making the pivot, we had to make sure that we were marketing all of those aspects of what our virtual event was because it was very differentiated. Because even still today, a virtual event can mean a webinar. It can be two hours of content, or for ours, it was four days worth of content. And so that was also really, really important. And that's also something that when we speak to clients, they're also struggling with. We had a four-day event. Does it have to be a four-day event or should it be a half-day event? We are, they're questioning themselves around, what should this event look like? And I always go back to the foundations of, what are the main objectives of your event? Is it thought leadership? Is it connections? Is it um, engaging one-on-one with your audience? And from there, you could start building out your architecture, but not really understanding where your clients are, whether it's internal clients, external clients, VIPs. It's really difficult to create that architecture in the immediate days, because once you have that architecture in the early days, everything there else will also follow suit. We had that at Forrester because we were really tight on what we were going to deliver, it was always around the Forrester IP. It was always about the expertise of our analyst. It was about the community in our marketplace. So we had it. It then was adapting to the digital world that we had had to start learning from because that was a part of the playbook that we didn't know about. And we made some broad assumptions. Fortunately, we did them quite well, but we're still learning. We're still learning as we're heading into the second half delivering. But again, it goes back to, I still will say this, and I always repeat this to the clients, make sure your strategy, make sure your objectives are clear, because everything there that follows will then be have more of a probability to be successful, because if you don't, it's really hard. And then it goes down to the KPIs that Jesse talked about, because ultimately, even the virtual space, you still need to measure what success looked like. We made some broad strokes assumptions, but I will tell you, in-person measurements do adapt differently than the digital space. Why? Because one of the benefits of the digital space, which we didn't have in the in-person space of now, a great metric is post-event viewing. We never had that in our in-person space. Right now we're realizing a huge amount of activity and viewership around our content sessions, almost two to three times as much of actually the actual event as we're doing post-event. And so that was a really good activity for us and talk about a buying, kind of like a, a buying indicator that's a really good buying indicator for us to see where our attendees are watching and what the sessions are attending. So that was a big upside.
2: I'm interested in um, how you approached the attendee behavior or expectations. Um, you know, obviously everything we do at Forrester is very customer obsessed and focused on what that journey is for our clients. But to the point you made earlier even about the terminology of what a virtual event is and what your expectations are walking in i would i would hazard a guess that many of our clients that came to one of those first virtual events didn't know what to expect there there almost wasn't a preconceived notion of what they were going to get what the experience was going to like be like how they should navigate what correct value propositions would come to life and correct. which means. so Are there learnings that you could offer on almost how to teach the attendees how to take advantage of an event while you're putting it on?
3: Sharon, that's like 100%. And I will say this. It was a very big, one of the big aha moments that we had heading into North America Summit, which was our first biggest event, followed quickly by our next biggest event. The biggest aha moment was, although we were calling a virtual event, the platforms that we were using or a lot of our clients are using are fairly unknown. We can, we can rattle off to two or three right now that most people utilize. We know how to click into a webinar, it's pretty easy. For us, the big aha was one, because our, because our event was gated, it mean there was a whole password. We had a password hurdle to go over. We learned that one the hard way. And so we took some of those learnings and applied it to CX North America not to not to air a dirty laundry, but it definitely was a learning, and we did try to fix it. But I think what you talked about is 100%. Now, I call it onboarding and training. One of the things that we knew was going to be a challenge, similar to in-person, was at the time of registration, you usually get a backup of d- delegates. Why? Because everyone shows up at the same time, although you try to get them there early, teasing them with food and beverage in the in-person, we need to try to replicate that in the digital in the digital environment because the initial fear was if you have all your attendees, and I know a lot of our clients like ourselves had multiple thousands of attendees coming to the event. You didn't want all of them to come to the event at the same time because your first reaction is the platform is going to blow up. Our platform didn't blow up. What ended up happening is that everyone wanted new passwords. And so a big takeaway for us was one, don't try to drive all your attendees to the platform two hours before the event. Although we thought we were being very clever and that wasn't to give us amount of time. No, everyone tried to register in the last 15 minutes up to the event, no surprising. So what we're doing is in the second half of the year, we are taking a lot of time to onboard and train. So we're opening the platform a day before the event and we're trying to do a training session of actually creating pre-event sessions so our attendees can navigate the platforms and even if you use the same platform as say another event company there's different ways you set up the user experience is different and again most of the events that most of our attendees are attending aren't on the same platform so there is a learning curve not just in your environment but there's certain expectations some some attendees expect I should do one click and I'm in. What is this whole password I have to figure out? Because for our events, we have multiple tracks. There's multiple things. So we are trying double downing on the onboarding and training by opening the platform early, trying to entice them with new types of content on ways in which we're trying to do a demo video. But again, again, to be honest, it's going to be a learning curve for us. It's going to be a learning curve for everyone. But I think the best part is to try to onboard and educate as early as you can. And that typically means you have to do that in the platform because you can tell people what the environment is like. The fact is they have to be in the environment to really understand what it looks like.
1: And I would add to that one other aspect that I think Lisa and team did really, really well, uh, putting my speaker hat on as, as one that had to actually deliver that content. So thinking about that first event and that six week window, um, to get analysts who are accustomed to delivering in-person 50-minute sessions to get us, first of all, to condense (laughs) our content down to that 20-minute mark that's more digestible in that virtual format, to get us comfortable speaking on video if that's a new muscle for us to be flexing, all of those... um, almost human elements that come into play there? Am I going to be confident speaking on video? Uh, am I going to be able to advance my slides when I need to, when I'm used to, you know, having my, my clicker in my hand on stage? So, um, you know, just props to uh, Lisa and team for really enabling the speakers. And whether that's your own team of analysts or an, or an external speaker that you've invited in, that's another key piece of that. And not only were we, were we ready to deliver on our own content, But when it comes time to interacting with those attendees within the platform, capturing the moments of opportunity. So after a session, after a keynote, continuing a conversation from a live Q&A during a track session, we were all very well prepared to do that. And, you know, speaking of what are some of those elements that were going to want to continue uh, in the new normal, whatever that looks like. It is that in the moment uh, engagement with our attendees that has just been really a a cool thing for us to be able to do in this virtual scenario.
0: Yeah, I mean, it feels like there is just so much value in the virtual experience data that we would have never gotten in an in-person experience, a continuation of conversations that just can't be facilitated as easy in an in-person experience. So as we look to, you know, I think plans for the second half of 2020 are probably locked and loaded, but as we look to 2021 and beyond, what are you, what are you guys thinking about how, you know, how are brands going to either embrace virtual or maybe a hybrid model
3: um, in the future? I think, Jen, that's a good question, and I think some of the conversations that we're having internally, as well as you know, some of the conversations I've had with clients, is this notion of hybrid. And I think there's a couple of things there, and I actually had a long and lengthy conversation with the head of events from a big technology company this past week. In the same way that we talk about there are different definitions of what virtual events are, which are still out there, there is now this question of what does a hybrid definition is? In the current state, and as we know, it's at, at this stage, it is unknown what the in-person component will be. But as we're looking out into the future, I think for us to plan, I think at the, at the very basic level, to make an assumption that everything is coming back in person based on some of the leading indicators we're seeing some of some major events are starting to call uh, virtual events in the first half some companies potentially not going back to the office until September of next year. I think at at the very foundations, I think making plans in terms of having a hybrid approach of at least having some sort of digital channel for your events. And then when we're able, whether it's in North America or we're starting to see pockets of events starting to, I think increase more quickly in Europe and Asia Pacific, starting to gain plans around where we can actually support in person. But I think for me and, you know, being in the events position, and I know Jesse will know this speaking to more of clients and particularly in her position, you know, for my position, it's about making sure that we, again, planning for what we know, but also planning what we don't know. What I do know is fortunately that we are able to successfully reach our clients by our digital events and we've done that successfully. So I know we can do that. And that is great because some of our clients are still going through the journey of actually making the pivot, so we've done that. What I don't know now, which I used to know a lot of for 30 years, is actually what the in-person environment is gonna look like, because it's also gonna look very different. Do I think it's gonna come back from not holding in-person events to fully holding in-person events? I think there's gonna be a little subtle differences, and at this stage, we don't know, but I think at at the very best place for us to be, and particularly as event leaders, you have to at the very least consider it is going to be hybrid. There is going to be a digital environment and a digital channel if you want to reach your clients. And then as we build out and we gain more insight of where we can actually plan in-person events, you start going back to some of those old playbooks that we haven't used in a long time and then starting to build up from there.
2: That all makes sense. And I have to believe that those that have successfully made the pivot so far to virtual have a leg up on figuring that hybrid world out, um, correct, Jesse. I'm interested in your point of view. Get your little crystal ball out here. Based <laughs> on clients you've talked to, I mean, how many people have successfully made the pivot? What's your estimation? I mean, ooh,
1: that's a a tough one. Without uh, calling anybody anybody out and saying you should have used our research and our our frameworks and tools, I um, have.
2: you don't need to name names. Just give me a ballpark. Like, is it 50 50, or
1: or is it worse than that? I would say 50-50 as a, a generous estimate. Um, and it really does come down to, you know, why are we there? What do we know about our buyer and their need that the event strategy is helping to meet? And then from there, what is the best format uh, to deliver that event? So, you know, will the, the guidance that we give change materially going forward? Not necessarily, it's the same strategic considerations um, for planning that event. That being said, ahead of the pandemic, we were already starting to experience a shift in the heightened expectations of the B2B buyer. We can see that in our response rates to things like email, display advertising, even you know what are people doing on the website. If we're not providing that immediate value to our buyers in whatever delivery mechanism, we're not going to see a good return. So we were already in the midst of uh, some changing expectations and marketers really needing to step up their game to meet those expectations. That will only continue now as we look uh, ahead to the new normal. Um, One way that we talk about that now is, you know, we're in the midst of this evolution toward what we're calling real-time buyer enablement. It's not enough to drive that click activity and that engagement. It's what are we doing with that activity and engagement to meet our buyers where they are on their terms, wherever this new normal takes us.
0: Knowing that we're well into the second half of 2020, and there may be firms starting this pivot to digital, what's your one piece of advice that you would be giving them today?
3: I think from my perspective, the number one piece of advice that I would give our clients, and I still give the clients today, focus on creating and identifying your objectives first, make your technology decision second. Most individuals flip that, once you flip that, it is likely to bring a lack of success to the overall execution. So objectives and strategies first, technology second or last.
1: And I would add really starting out with the audience, what is that audience context and what do we want to accomplish for that audience? Going into that planning process with an understanding of what are some of the buying signals that we want to listen for during that event experience and what are we going to do with those buying signals afterwards so just really keeping in mind the audience in the middle a very customer obsessed approach to that event planning and execution and then all of the interactions that are going to fall from that that event afterwards
0: great thank you both for joining us today thank you lisa thanks jesse thank you very much you
1: guys it's been great yes thank you for having us
0: If you like what you heard today, subscribe to Forrester's What It Means podcast on iTunes, Google Play, and Spotify, or your favorite podcast player. To continue the conversation, follow Forrester on Twitter and LinkedIn. Thanks for listening.